Take your Bibles, if you would please, and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13. Matthew, chapter 13, is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. Verse 24 is where we're going to start reading. Matthew 13, verse 24. Uh, in the years following the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, as more and more people became followers of His, they had an insatiable desire to know more about Him. And the Holy Spirit uh, used four uh, men to write Gospels, to write the story of the life of Jesus. They did it not just to give details, facts, to those who were curious, but they also wanted to help those young followers of Jesus uh, follow him more faithfully. These are gospels that are written not just to tell the history that happened, but to point us in the direction that we should go into the future. And this is one of those most important parables that does that, that the Lord Jesus told in Matthew 13, starting in verse 24. So follow along as I read from this parable. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. That's the parable. The interpretation begins in verse 36. So skip down to verse 36. Remember, they're separate from one another. The parable and its interpretation. Matthew is telling us by even the, the, the sequence of Matthew 13. He's reminding us about the purpose of the parables. The parables conceal the truth from those who are not interested. And they provoke curiosity and, and desire to know more among the, the faithful. And so the disciples come and ask for interpretive help inside the house. He told the parable outside, now inside the interpretation, verse 36. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. See if this sounds like a familiar scenario. I'm not identifying this explicitly as an autobiographical scene, but it might just be. So imagine it's Saturday morning and you are uh, getting ready for the day. You've already had three cups of coffee, so you're ready to move. 
And uh, around the house that day, it is pickup day. There's a lot of stuff around the house that needs to be put away, picked up, taken care of. And uh, immediately comes to your mind is your 12-year-old son's room. So you find him. He's on the couch. He's watching television. And you say to him, today's the day. Go pick up your room, please. Put away everything. Uh, make sure it's neat and tidy. Make it look like I would have done it myself, please. And he says, Okay. And he leaves and he goes upstairs, <coughs> works in his room. <coughs> Excuse me. While uh, you go back to the kitchen and you're putting uh, your coffee cup in the dishwasher and putting a couple things in, 47 seconds goes by and your son is back on the couch. A and you go to him and say, did you pick up your room? Yes. Your whole room. Yes. You put everything away. Yes. You know I'm going to check it, right? Yes. Okay. I'm going to do it right now. Okay. So you walk upstairs and you walk into the room and you look and it's a slightly less of a disaster area than it was before, but not much. So you call him upstairs and he comes up and he looks into the room with you and you say, look, and he says, yes, it's picked up. No. And you point out to him the 11 items immediately that you see that are not in their place and not been put away. You say, work at it again. Give it a go. Make it look great. And you go back downstairs. This time, it takes him 52 seconds before he ends up back downstairs. And uh, you uh, are a little skeptical. So you, you return to the bedroom and you find that he has successfully picked up eight of the 11 items that you picked out uh, for him. But you found six more that he ignored and that you didn't see the first go round either. So you call him again. Come back. Look at this room. What's wrong with this room? Nothing. I picked it up. No, it's a mess. I picked it up. If you picked, if you cleaned up your room, why then is it still such a mess? And he gives the universal answer of teenagers to questions like this. I don't know. If you picked it up, why is it still such a mess? This is a question that applies not just to teenagers and their bedrooms. It applies to employees and stock rooms. It applies to students and lockers. It applies to workmen and their shops sometimes, right? If you clean this up, why is it still such a mess? And that's a question that we can take to this text because it's at the heart of the story that Jesus has told. Matthew recorded this story that Jesus told because he's trying to push back against the question that he anticipated his readers would ask. Maybe the question would go like this. If Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, and he really is the risen Lord, then why is the world such a mess? Why is the world in such a mess? Uh, Jesus has here more in mind than a messy room. Here's a question. Why is it still such a mess? That applies to all kinds of contexts of life the chaos and the ruin and the pain of life. Jesus is explaining that this is, this mess that we experience in life is part of the unfolding, the unexpected unfolding of the kingdom. Remember how Matthew works. Jesus appears, he's born, and he brings with him all the credentials, all the evidence that you need to know that he is God's Messiah, that he's God's representative, that he is the one who has come to give the kingdom to the nation of Israel like God had promised, these Jews living in Palestine under Roman rule. 
But the Jews rejected the, the evidence and had no interest in him or any sort of kingdom that he would have to offer. So then what's going to happen to the kingdom? Jesus explains, starting in Matthew 13, using parables, that the kingdom is going to unfold in an unexpected way. And part of the unexpected unfolding of the kingdom is following Jesus faithfully in the midst of a broken and chaotic world. There are two questions in this text that the servants ask in this parable. And I want to use those two questions to guide us toward the meaning of the parable. Jesus told this story because he knew we would need it. He knew there would be times that the chaos of this world would particularly sting. And so he told us this story to provide us with comfort and security and help and encouragement. Here's the first question. Let's, let's look at this. The first question is, why is there such a mess? Why is there such a mess in the world? Jesus doesn't tell a story about bedrooms. He tells a story about fields. There was a farmer who owned a field and he sowed good seed. Now, what's interesting about this is that the, the, it's likely, if this were a, a, true, a real story and a real event that Jesus was telling, it's likely that the owner of the field probably didn't sow the seed himself. He had servants to do that that would have sowed it sown the seed themselves, they would have done it, not the owner. But that's not the emphasis that Jesus brings. He says, the man sowed good seed, and the owner's servants asked in verse 21, didn't you sow good seed? The reason I bring that up is it's kind of on the edge of the parable, but it's still an important one. The interpretation of the parable Jesus gives is that he is the one who sows the seed. And this is a reminder to us that Jesus in this world, though the kingdom has been unfolding in an unexpected way, Jesus still works. He is at work. He is at work even now. Matthew 16, he said, I will build my church. He builds his church. He sows his seed. I mention that because of how the New Testament develops in the book of Hebrews, the emphasis in the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is the risen Lord who has ascended into heaven and has sat down at his Father's right hand. He sat down. And the emphasis in the book of Hebrews on him sitting down is on the fact that he has finished, he has fully accomplished his redemptive work. He came to pay the penalty for our sins on the cross, and he did it, he paid it in full Full satisfaction has been made, and now that it has been made, the Lord Jesus sat down. It's important to keep that in mind because we, all of us have this internal urge within us to try to do something ourselves about our sin. That, that we're going to make up for the bad things that we've done by being good people. And if we're good people, then we'll be worthy of the love that God has for us. And we'll demonstrate that we are worthy of God's love. That we can make ourselves impressive to God so that we can merit his good favor, his forgiveness. And the book of Hebrews says, Nuh-uh, the work has been done. Jesus sat down. We, we have this internal urge to be good people. And, and, and this message of Jesus finishing the work holy and, and forgiveness being a free gift, sometimes it bothers us, especially when we think about our enemies. They don't deserve the free gift of forgiveness. Jesus sat down. 
But he's still working. He's still working. He's still sowing seed. He's still building his church. Today in the world, someone, I pray that it would be dozens of someones, if not hundreds of someones, will turn and become a follower of Jesus. They will turn from their sins and trust in him as their savior. And that is the evidence that Jesus is still working. And maybe somebody in your family, maybe somebody in your neighborhood, maybe one of the kids who come to our Wana Club on Wednesday nights or one of the athletes who's come to our Turkey Bowl, someone today, may it be dozens if not hundreds or thousands of people, will turn and trust in the Lord Jesus because he is still at work calling people to himself. He's the good shepherd who is calling his lost sheep to himself. He's at work. Jesus is at work. He's not the only one who's at work. Verse 25 tells us about the enemy who comes. While everyone was sleeping, his enemy came. Now, there's some people who see in this parable um, that uh, the, the, the sleeping people, they blame the owner's servants. They should have not have been sleeping. They should have been vigilant. The text does not blame them. It mentions the fact that the enemy came while everyone was sleeping because the enemy is sneaky. He's crafty, he's cagey, and he came and he planted weeds with the wheat. The weed he planted probably, if uh, we were to uh, place this in the context of the day, may be the weed we know as Darnell. Darnell is called rye, it's a form of ryegrass, and Darnell, when it first sprouts, is so similar to wheat that it, uh, they, it's virtually impossible to tell them apart. In fact, Darnell is sometimes called false wheat. And you can't identify Darnell. You can't distinguish wheat from Darnell until it uh, forms heads, until the grain appears. Then you can tell the difference. Jesus tells us in the interpretation that the enemy who does this is the devil. And this is the second time that the devil has appeared in Matthew 13 in these parables. In the unexpected, unfolding way that the kingdom is going to come, the devil is at work. In, in the first parable that he told, the parable about the sower, the devil is compared to birds that come and, and take the seed off of hard path, uh, uh, the hardened path. There, uh, the devil works to thwart the faith of people. And in this parable, uh, Frederick Bruner says that the devil comes to thwart love. He thwarts faith, and now he thwarts love. And I'll tell you why he thinks that in just a few minutes. Here's the question. The owner's servants, as the grains and the, the wheat and the darnel grow together, finally there's, they form heads and they can tell the difference. And the, the servants come in verse 27 and say, what happened? What happened? The owner's servants came to him and said, sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? Why is there such a mess in the field? Now that is a broad question. What happened? It's a question that is, uh, can uh, appear and be relevant to a number of contexts. There are philosophers who might pick up this question, what happened, and, and, and uh, use it to probe what they sometimes call the problem of evil in the world. If the world, huh, since the world was made by a good God who is sovereign, why is there evil in the world? Why is there so much suffering in the world? What happened? What happened? It's a question that you can take and uh, uh, cast over a church, a particular congregation. There's a group of people who say they love Jesus. They want to follow Jesus. 
Why are they so mean? Why are they so disagreeable? God in his kindness has spared us from a lot of meanness and a lot of disagreeability. But you know churches where this has, has happened, right? If, if they love Jesus, what, what happened to them? What happened? This is a question that you could take, what happened, and apply it to your own heart, can't you? you what, what's wrong with you? You've been a follower of Jesus for decades. You read the Bible, you pray, you go to church, you teach Sunday school, you serve, you give faithfully. Why do you still struggle with the same habits and patterns of sin in your life? You've read books, you've been to conferences, you're trying to... to ta- it's just, you haven't changed. What's wrong with you? Do you ever feel like two different people? You're one sort of person in the morning, you wake up and you you think about the day ahead of you and maybe you spend some time reading the Bible and praying and you have you are full of holy resolution. Holy resolution about what sort of day you're going to have. And 12 hours later, your resolutions are gone. And there's that other person who seems to live in your body. Do you ever feel like that? The Apostle Paul would like to have a word with you. It's called Romans 7 because he felt like that sometimes. Hmm. What happened? What, what happened? And, and the, the owner gives a four-word answer in verse 28. He says, an enemy did this. An enemy did this. God has an enemy who is actively at work to ruin the world that God has made. And during this period of time, God has ordained for now that some of his enemy's plans will come to fruition. Why is there such a mess? What happened? An enemy did this. Now, there's some things to consider even here as we think about this answer that that the owner gives, the the farmer gives in this passage. Uh, Does it remind you at all of Genesis 1 and 2? Maybe it should. In Genesis 1 and 2, it's the story of God, the account of God calling the world into creation. He speaks, and things are good. And every day they get gooder and gooder and gooder. Until at the end of the the week, God looks at everything he made and says, this is very good. And if that's all the scripture we would have, we have, you might, you might pick up Genesis 2 at, at the end of it and say, well, okay, yes, very good, and the world is still beautiful, but, but what happened? There's a lot of mess in the world. What, what happened? And then Genesis 3.1 immediately begins, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. What happened to the world? An enemy did this. We also think about this as we think about an enemy did this. We, we, we do think about the other answers that Jesus could have given. That he, I'm not sure how this would have changed the parable. I'm not sure how he would have worked this into the parable. He could have done that, I'm sure. But um, the answer we would like to give most often instead of an enemy did this, the answer we often are most inclined to give is we want to identify bad seed, human rebellion. Why is the world the way it is? What's at the source of the the chaos and the ruin? Our rebellion, our orientation away from God. Every human being is born this way, disinclined to give God the glory that is his due as creator. God says up, we say down. God says left, we say right. God says white, we say black. 
we uh, are wrestling with God for control of the universe. Actually, don't we? We wrestle with every source of authority in our lives for control. And and how, how could it be other than chaos in a world in which we are wrestling with our creator for control? That's the answer that we're most often inclined to give. That's not where Jesus focuses our, our attention in this parable. He immediately says, an enemy did this, and he identifies that enemy as the devil. He focuses there without embarrassment and without pause. Not us. We're sometimes a little embarrassed by this Satan talk. And, and sometimes it's easier, too, for us to focus on our own sin. It gives us a little bit of a sense of power and control. I mean, it's bad power. It's bad control. Why is the world the way it is? Well, we broke it. But look how strong we are. We broke it. And, and maybe we don't like the idea that this world is in part a battlefield between cosmic spiritual forces over which we have no control. We don't like that. Jesus is not embarrassed by this answer. The rest of the New Testament is not embarrassed by this answer. Look at Ephesians 6.12, what it says. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Or 1 Peter 5.8, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Why is it that our fellow followers of Jesus in uh, foreign lands suffering so? Why are they suffering? Because there's a roaring lion, our enemy, the devil, prowling about. Have you figured this into your equation uh, for ciphering through the world? There is a devil who wants to ruin everything that God has made that is good and beautiful and true. Why is this world such a mess? An enemy did this. Now that leads to the second question here. The second question we ask, what do we do about it? What do we do about it? This is a question that is also in the uh, uh, lips of, in the mouths of the servants. Verse 28, an enemy did this, he replied, and the servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? What should we do? What should we do about the weeds? Should we go and pull them up? And Jesus gives two answers to the question. The first answer to the question is, he tells them to fight wisely. Fight the weeds wisely. Verse 30, 29. No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. You've got to be careful. Be careful pulling weeds because you might do damage to the wheat. Verse 30, let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Engage with the weeds wisely. Now, let me tell you the most common interpretation of this parable that has dominated throughout church history. It started with Augustine. It came through Calvin and ended up with us too. And I, I, want, you to I want to tell you this interpretation, and then I think you'll see the crucial flaw that is in it. Far be it for me to disagree with August Augustine and Calvin in one day, but I'm going to. 
the most common interpretation is the church is going to be a mess. This is a parable about the church, and the church is going to be a messy place. It's going to have true believers in it, and it's going to have imposters in it, false professors. And this parable is a warning about focusing too much on uh, striving for a pure church. Be careful. Be careful about trying to weed the church too much because um, if you do, you'll hurt true believers. You should avoid weeding the church unless you absolutely have to. Don't do it. It's better to just let them be there. I wonder if that interpretation um, inspires... Sometimes, I, I confess, I, I, as a Baptist, I'm I sometimes just mystified by some of our brothers and sisters in larger, uh, larger church bodies and, and the heresy they tolerate within their own church bodies. Well, we Baptists are far from perfect. I understand that. But, but you wonder, is, is, this, is this parable prompting them? Do you know the crucial flaw? Did you notice the crucial flaw, though, in that interpretation that this is about the church and how we shouldn't be striving for purity in the church? The crucial flaw, you probably saw it. Jesus says that, verse 38, the field is the world, not the church. This is not a pass, a parable about how believers interact with one another in the church. The emphasis is here is how God's people interact with the world not how followers of Jesus respond to one another. I know that in, because, in part, because of the, the rest of the context of the book of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus is going to tell us what to do as a local church when there are people inside the congregation who, who profess to be followers of Jesus but live lives that, that don't match the profession. When your life doesn't match your profession, then what are you supposed to do? And Jesus tells us about the discipline process. We'll get to this when we get to Matthew 18. But eventually the end of it is treat that person, though they're professing their faith in Jesus, if they're not living as a follower of Jesus and they don't repent from it, dismiss them from the congregation. Treat them as an unbeliever. They're not objects of your prayer and fellowship. They're objects of your uh, evangelism because they're apparently not genuine believers, though they're professing that they are. That's weeding in the church, Matthew 18. Or um, because we prayed for our elders this morning, look at Titus 1.9. Titus 1.9, what an elder is supposed to do. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. This is not about this parable is not about wavering in our vigilance to protect the church. There may be some side door help though in, in that regard, I, I suppose. There's a theologian, he died several years ago. His name was A.W. Pink, and he wrote a fine book about the attributes of God. And towards the end of his life, the second half of his life, A.W. Pink became more and more concerned about impurity in local congregations. And he, towards the end of his life, left church after church after church because he couldn't find a congregation that was pure enough, uh, that was uh, holy enough, that was full of believers enough. So he left church after church. Towards the end of his life, he wasn't going anywhere to church because he could not find a church uh, uh, that met his standards for righteousness and seriousness. Maybe he should have taken a lesson from this parable. There's a little side door help for him here. But the emphasis, the focus, is actually on how followers of Jesus engage with the world. 
We have a calling to engage with the world. We're to be salt and light and to interact with the world. But Jesus is saying here, he's warning us, don't be so focused on pulling weeds in the world that you damage the wheat. Be careful about that. Now, there's lots of places in church history where this might have applied. So Jesus gave this parable 2,000 years ago. Matthew wrote it down a decade or so, a couple decades after Jesus spoke these words. 2,000 years in which this parable could have helpfully been applied. One thinks of the Crusades as a good example of, of, of maybe someone should have read Matthew 13 before they picked up a sword to go kill infidels. Maybe they should have done that. Uh, now, what I want to do, it, Jesus is, is focused. He, he wants the, his people to focus in this chaotic, messy world Two directions. There are weeds. Yes, there are weeds in the world. That's true. But you have a responsibility to tend wheat. Don't get so focused on pulling weeds that you trample wheat. I want to mention this morning two contemporary issues, and I do it with trepidation. Uh, if nothing else, it will give you something to argue about at lunchtime. So, And you can send all your complaints. You can email them to me. My email address is sharrison at finegracehere.org. Now, the first, the first, uh, uh, is, uh, first contemporary issue I actually want to talk about is just a, an illustration of what Jesus is talking about. This tension between pulling weeds and, 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 uh, tending wheat. Just, just an illustration. We're in the midst of, I hope, towards the end of a pandemic. And we are trying to follow all kinds of mitigation strategies to stop the spread of the virus. And for decades to come, we are going to be arguing as a society about the mitigation practices that we undertook and whether or not they were worth it. So there's going to be books and there's going to be documentaries and there's going to be articles and there's going to be debates and discussions. So all of these mitigation practices that we have, the executive orders that have been made, have they been worth the damage that has been done educationally to students in school? Is it worth the damage that has been done to the mental health of our seniors that live isolated in their assisted living facilities? Has it been worth the economic damage that has been done to businesses that have been forced uh, to close? Has it been worth uh, the, the, uh, just the general isolation that has happened in our uh, culture because of these mitigation strategies? Have we... Pulled weeds at the cost of wheat. That's just an illustration of the way that I think Jesus is encouraging his people to think in this world as we encounter both weeds and wheat. Some of you have opinions about that already. Maybe it's too soon to tell. That's my two cents. Maybe it's too soon to tell. But, but it's an illustration. Now, perhaps I'll move on to application. Would this passage help us as we think about how evangelicals have engaged in politics in the United States? Pulling weeds and tending wheat. Uh, I, I sense that there is a, a generational rift opening up in the church, the white evangelical church in the United States. Not so much over positions, uh, political positions, but about political tactics. What compromises can be made? How will followers of Jesus enter the fray? 
Jesus is raising the possibility, is he not here, that it is that you can be so focused on wheat in the world that you forget the wheat weeds, sorry, so focused on the weeds in the world that you forget to tend the wheat that God has entrusted into your care? Is that a possibility? What does fighting wisely look like under these circumstances? If you were to uh, take everything that you do that or that uh, we expect uh, our political engagement to do to pull weeds, to, to fight the foes and fight the fight, if we were to, to list all those things and compare it to the list that we do to tend the wheat, how do the lists look? For every, for every snarky, negative, critical, angry, incisively uh, 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 critique, incisive critique that we offer of the weeds, are there ten statements that we make that tend the wheat that God's entrusted to our care? Can you compare? Is that a way that works? Now think about Bruner's concern, Frederick Bruner's concern. Um, so uh, the devil has thwarted faith in the first parable by stealing the seed. Now he is, says he is thwarting love because he is, by, by uh, planting weeds in the world, he is uh, turning us into hateful people because we're so focused on the weeds. So focused on the weeds that we have no love. It's hard to love people that you fear. It's hard to love people that you view as your enemies or see as pollutants. The way that our country is developing our political discourse is that our political heroes are those who are the best at sticking it to the other side. Doesn't matter if you're conservative, doesn't matter if you're liberal, Republican, or Democrat. You're a hero if you can stick it to the other side, right? We followers of Jesus are supposed to love our enemies. We can't hate our enemies. So instead, we vote for men and women who hate our enemies for us. Is that, is Jesus' help here in that? Don't be so focused on pulling weeds that you trample or hurt the wheat. I'm grateful. I am grateful for people who are involved in uh, uh, politics, who are called to the polemics of the issue. I'm grateful for lobbyists who are followers of Jesus. I'm grateful for ethicists who speak out and write about these issues who are followers of Jesus. Jesus warns us here, do this, do that work for the love of God's people rather than for your hatred of God's enemies. It's different. Fight wisely. Now, secondly, he says, wait patiently. Wait patiently. This is the focus of Jesus' interpretation of the parable, and he points the attention of his disciples to judgment that is to come in the last day. In the parable, the weeds are gathered up and burned. In the interpretation that Jesus gives, he sends out angels into the world to gather those who promote sin and practice lawlessness, and they will be thrown into a blazing furnace where there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping is a symbol of regret. Gnashing of teeth is a symbol of resentment. I don't deserve this. Matthew Thomas says that he and his grandmother were walking through 
uh, New York City a few years ago. They were going to go visit the United Nations building as they're touring around. And they came across a street preacher who was preaching through a passage very much like this and warning people, you must turn and trust in the Lord Jesus. If you don't, there is nothing for you but the expectation of fiery judgment where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And as is the want, there was a heckler in the crowd, a very old woman who was heckling this evangelist. And she said, yeah, gnashing of teeth. I don't have any teeth. And the evangelist looked at her and said, Madam, for you, teeth will be provided. This is kind of a funny story about a really terrible judgment. Judgment that is beyond our imagining. This is what the Lord Jesus bore for us on the cross, God's wrath. And here is God's wrath being poured out on those who will not turn and trust in the Lord Jesus. Terrible judgment. Wait patiently. The world is indeed, there are weeds, there's trouble, there's chaos. Wait patiently because someday the Lord Jesus is going to return and he's going to make it right. He's going to fix things. He's going to bring about justice. Wait patiently. Verse 43 offers us this contrast, a promise. It's intentional. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. This was a cold and gray week in Lancaster County, wasn't it? Some of you, you spent time looking out the window at the snow falling. I think it's beautiful, wonderful. But the sane among us were looking out the window and all you saw was a lot of gray, right? Gray in the sky, uh, white on the ground. It, it's so hard to tell sometimes where the white clouds and the, the snow, when they, where they meet, where's the horizon? And the brown trees, and there's no sound of birds, and it's cold. It's really cold outside. And you've been looking out your window, and all you have been thinking about is the shore and July. And you've been thinking about how you just can't wait to put on shorts and a t-shirt and your flip-flops and walk out and feel the sand in your toes. And and you want to see that bright blue sky and hear the water crash on the shore and feel the warmth of the sun heat up your skin. You just want to lay there and absorb it. That's what you're thinking about when you're looking outside at the snow. Jesus says here, yes, it's true, we live in a February world, but July is coming. July is coming. It will be the kingdom of your Father. The kingdom of love, ruled over by God himself. Wait, wait patiently, that day is coming. That day is coming. Why in the world is there such a mess? An enemy did this. What do we do about it? Fight wisely and wait patiently. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for your kindness to us through the Lord Jesus. We thank you for your great mercy that has called us out of the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of your Son. Lord, uh, we confess that 
living in this chaotic and broken and messy world, it sometimes discourages us. It causes us to be hopeless and disquieted and agitated. I'm grateful to you for this assurance that the Lord Jesus gave, knowing these temptations that we would face. So we come and ask you that you would help us to wait for that day when the Lord Jesus returns and makes things right. Help us, Lord. We want to be people who represent you well in the world, too. So help us to be wise in this balance between pulling weeds and tending wheat. Grant us mercy. And we pray, as we often do when we partake in the Lord's Supper, come quickly, Lord Jesus, that we might see your face and celebrate what you have done for us face to face with great joy. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.